Tired of losing money in the stock market roller coaster? Frustrated with the government taxing you into oblivion? Worried about inflation? How do you prepare for so many financial uncertainties? Welcome to the show that will help you develop your game plan. The Financial Quarterback with Josh Jelinski. Josh is a noted financial advisor and president of the Jelinski Advisory Group. And he's here to answer your questions. Call into the show at 800-321-0710. 800-321-0710. Now, let's kick off your financial future. Here's Josh Jelinski. Hi, everybody. This is Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback. And we're joined by Nikolai Wenzel of the AIER.org, the American Institute for Economic Research. Did I do it right? You sure did. It's a pleasure to be here, Josh. And you're a libertarian author, professor, and a research fellow. So describe your background. Are you are you in Europe right now? Or I'm current no, I'm currently at AIER headquarters in uh, Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Wonderful. I'm here for a month of residency of research uh, in the quiet bucolic hills of the Berkshires and mentoring the next generation of uh, professors and students. And I'm heading back to Europe next week. Great. Are there many um, professors? And students that have more of a libertarian philosophy like you, is it, is it something that's dying, rising? Are we seeing people enter academia? Or are they being shut out? Uh, well, it's rising, but it's still pretty small. I think if you look at the numbers, they're still terrifying. Something like 80% of uh, professors identify as uh, center left or far left and the numbers from Marxism. Uh, despite the failed experiment between 1917 and 1989, the numbers are still very high. Uh, but I'm an optimist, and we have more and more Austrian, classical, liberal, libertarian uh, uh, professors rising, coming out of great PhD programs like George Mason University, where I went, newer ones like uh, the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University. So I see great hope. What, yeah, what are the more, I guess, libertarian universities out there? So usually it comes down to individual programs and professors. The universities themselves are not necessarily uh, enamored of the principles of the American founding and individual liberty. Uh, but uh, the George Mason University economics uh, program, uh, the Texas Tech University economics program, uh, there's some good philosophy programs and history programs uh, throughout the United States and throughout the world of pockets, a surprisingly big pocket in Madrid and Spain. Um, London in England has a few and then uh, scattered throughout the U.S., the uh, University of Arizona, Arizona State, um, San Jose State University. And there are pockets here and there of professors doing great work to advance uh, individual liberty and economic freedom. Well, I guess that's good to know. So how do you feel about where we are with inflation right now? I'll jump right to it. Yeah, it's it's still it's still a little the, the Federal Reserve in its great wisdom has spoken and said that inflation is partially tamed. Uh, officially, it's around four or five percent now. Uh, I'm not sure uh, this is the end of the story. Uh, there are a number of factors at play here. One of them is that if you look at uh, the federal funds rate, uh, the target federal funds rate at five, the five and a quarter percent um, target rate, that's a nominal. That's a nominal rate, and if you adjust that for inflation, we're back down to about zero uh, percent real interest rates, which is going to have some expansionary pressures on the economy. So we'll see if that translates into further inflation. 
The other thing is there's always going to be some sort of a lag between the time the Federal Reserve raises interest rates and we see inflation falling. So we certainly haven't seen the end of the story. Add to that the fact that we're uh, seven short months away from the Iowa caucuses and a year out from the um, um, the Democratic and Republican uh, presidential nomination conventions. We could see anything. And the Federal Reserve does not want to put the economy into a recession uh, in the middle of a presidential season. Part of me thinks... We'll have this relief rally between now and the end of the year as people think, okay, inflation's coming to an end. They see the end. And then all of a sudden we wake up in 2024 and realize recession is full-blown here. Inflation didn't really go away like it, like we thought it would. It's kind of persistent at this whatever number it is right now, four, five, six percent number. And then boom, kind of we hit the the slopes downward again, market would go downhill. I don't know why I'm thinking that. I mean, we have a resident market technician on staff who may have biased me about that thought, but I definitely think that's not impossible. What what, what say you? It, It certainly is possible. And I think a lot of it has to do not just with economists looking technically at the economy or financial planners looking dispassionately, Uh, What are people thinking? People are tired, I think. Uh, We were so used to having uh, inflation at 2%, which is negligible and predictable, and suddenly it hit 8, 10, depending on how you measure it, uh, low double digits. I think people are exhausted. And on the one hand, they're going to look, see, I'm an economist, I have to say on the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, people are going to look at the numbers and say, okay, well, it's only 5% or 6% now. It's rising more slowly. There's a reprieve. Let's catch a deep breath. But Let's keep in mind that inflation is the rate of change of prices. So those prices that went up over the past year and a half, two years, they're not going down. They're still taking a dent uh, into our wallets, a dent into the percentage of our um, income that we can spend on basic things like food and energy. And energy prices are temporarily down. Let's see what happens if it's a particularly hot summer or cold winter. So much could happen. But I think the key right now is that the Federal Reserve wants to tame inflation but it doesn't want to run the risk of putting the economy in the recession in general because the Fed doesn't want to do that. But also specifically, it doesn't want to do so in the uh, coming up to an election. Specifically, I suspect the Federal Reserve doesn't want to hurt uh, the Democrats' chances, Joe Biden's chances. I'm going out on a little bit of a limb right there. But uh, the Federal Reserve is not going to want to raise interest rates aggressively. So we could see a number of things. Um Markets are still high. I think that's from all the money that's been pumped into them. People are still riding a high. When do people wake up? When is there an adjustment? Uh, Your theory is certainly plausible, but I don't have a crystal ball, so I'm going to keep it to general uh, uh, pattern prediction comments. And pattern prediction, what are you seeing? I mean, when does inflation get back to normal levels? Back to this notion of pattern prediction, I look back and – I knew in the early 2000s that something fishy was going on with all that easy money, and I couldn't have told you exactly that sometime in late 2007 there would be contagion in the uh, financial markets and some of the big banks would go down and mortgage-backed securities would come home to roost and uh, we would then have a financial crisis leading to an economic crisis. I couldn't have told you that exactly. I would have told you something's brewing and I don't like it. Uh, Likewise, over the COVID era, when we had uh, the massive expenditures, about $5 trillion, basically 100% extra of federal spending thrown at COVID wantonly, um, 
we we saw I knew there was going to be something fishy going on. It turns out the Fed monetized that and uh, we got inflation as a result of it. So uh, I'm always terribly cautious about making specific predictions because so much can happen economically and so much can happen politically. We're in volatile times. It'll be interesting to see what other macroeconomic and political considerations show up in the next six months. Uh, I have innate faith in markets. Markets tend to correct themselves. Markets grow. Uh, American markets have great innovation. But when you throw the Federal Reserve and politicians in, all bets are off. So would there be any of your economic-based patterns? Like, what do they say? I know you don't want to predict, but... Well, what we're seeing right now, if I'm looking at patterns, I'm looking at the fact that we're still in an inflationary period and inflation could continue. Uh, so that that is one thing, that one possibility. The second thing is the Federal Reserve has a record of over-adjustment. So one of the things in the back of my mind right now is whether the Federal Reserve is going to overreact uh, it, it was very slow to respond to inflation. It is still acting very cautiously. Um, as you know, the Fed since 1977 has been saddled with a dual mandate, uh, so-called. That is, it has a dual responsibility of maintaining low and um, stable prices and low unemployment. And so it's walking that tight line right now. The inflation got high enough that the Federal Reserve had to act. Uh, right now, there seem to be some results and inflation seems to be coming down. But the Federal Reserve, I think, is terrified of throwing the economy into a recession. So given its past patterns, I'm always worried that the Federal Reserve is going to do something, uh, overplay its hand and throw us into another recession the way it did in 2001, the way it did in 2008. Uh, so that's my worry right there. I don't think it'll happen before the election. So maybe your three-month uh, window is going to be more of a window of a year and a half until after the election, it's always a possibility that the Federal Reserve is going to overreact, raise interest rates too much, and throw us into a recession. What are your thoughts on ESG and, and recent ESG mandates and also uh, the kind of states like Florida fighting back against ESG mandates? I'm going to be blunt before I'm generous. ESG is dangerous, and it's a disaster, and it represents a fundamental misunderstanding of what markets do. I have a slightly more generous explanation I'll share in a moment. Um, but what, what do markets do? What do entrepreneurs do? Entrepreneurs take resources that are useless to us. If I look at this computer that's in front of me, it's a bunch of plastic, it's a bunch of circuitry, and it's a bunch of knowledge trapped in a software engineer's head that is utterly useless to me. And an entrepreneur somewhere combined all those ingredients to create value for me, something for which I'm willing to pay several hundred dollars because it's useful. An entrepreneur, a business, takes inputs and transforms them into outputs and serves the consumer in the process, creates wealth in the process, innovates in the process, creates job in the pro jobs in the process. In my mind, the most noble thing in the world is meeting payroll every two weeks, thinking of all the people who are dependent on you and the risk that the entrepreneur takes for that. And so when people come along with ESG, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what markets and businesses are already doing. Businesses are feeding us. Businesses are paying mortgages. Businesses are putting food on the table. They're paying for educations. Businesses are doing some fantastic things. And businesses are innovating. Businesses are uh, have taken down over the past 20 years the amount of energy required to run the U.S. economy per unit of GDP by something like 25%. Businesses are making cars more um, environmentally sound and more productive uh, in terms of the energy that's required. Businesses are doing all of these fantastic things that we don't stop and think about. 
And so the first problem with ESG is that it's a distraction from the core function of business. The second problem with ESG is that I find it's usually a polite way of, of saying that it's bullying. It's trying to take somebody else's resources. Um, you're, you're welcome to do what you want with your own resources. But when you start coming in and trying to impose on companies benchmarks of what you think they should be doing rather than what the owners of the company should be doing, we've got a problem. And we've seen that a lot with ESG. It's politicized. It's trying to advance a certain political agenda. I'm much more of a fan of the voluntary conscious capitalism where uh, businesses are trying to maximize profit for their shareholders. They're trying to innovate to serve consumers. But they also recognize that they operate within what we might call an ecosystem of healthy communities, healthy um, environment, um, healthy workers, healthy suppliers, and they voluntarily think long-term and invest in all those relationships without being forced from the outside to do so. Now, in the case of Florida, that was your last question. I think it's important to have uh, pushback um, against the ESG impositions. It's important to have pushback against the neo-Marxism that we're seeing in schools with the woke movement, uh, et cetera. But at the same time, I'm always a little bit comfortable when it's one branch of government pushing back um, against uh, something that's going on uh, because we are we live in a democracy, which is a good thing. But that also means that the opposition could start pushing. I much prefer to see those pushes coming from civil society, from individual citizens, uh, from uh, within the academia and from within market rather than from within government. How do you feel about the many outlets announcing we are back in a bull market? So again, I'm, I'm always cautious about uh, speculation. I will say that there's froth and too what we might consider to be unhealthy activity in stock markets these days. I think that primarily comes from the all the easy money that is sloshing around in the economy. If you figure between roughly 2008 and roughly 2018, we had near zero interest rates and sometimes negative real interest rates. That was a huge injection of uh, money into the economy. And then the Federal Reserve uh, monetizing, basically buying up the debt uh, from the U.S. federal government and its anti-COVID efforts and its generally high expenditures. The Federal Reserve's balance sheet doubled between 2020 and 21 as the Federal Reserve was pumping so much money into the economy. That money had to go somewhere. Now, where's it going to go ultimately? That's the big question. What is the next uh, bust that we're going to see in the business cycle? Uh, that's the interesting question always. My sense is that the stock market may be one of them. We're going to continue, I think, seeing very high stock returns. And the question is when the adjustment comes. Fantastic. We're going to take a short break from our interview with Nikolai Wenzel of the AIER. But before we do, I have a special. It's a three-for-one special. You get Nikolai's book or my book for free when you schedule and keep your no-obligation review. But today and today only, we will give you Nikolai's book and my book, two-for-one special, when you schedule your 45-minute wealth strategy session. But you got to go, call us today and today only at 888-988-JOSH. That's 888-988-5674. And request the two-for-one special, Nikolai Wenzel's book, and my book, The Retirement Reality Check, for free when you schedule and keep your no-obligation protection, savings, and growth strategy session. 45-minute Zoom call or in-person meeting with one of our advisors. 
me included, 888-988-JOSH, 888-988-5674. Tune in to the financial quarterback, Josh Jelinski, this weekend and learn how to protect your financial future in a down economy. Josh and his team at the Jelinski Advisory Group can help you lower your taxes and lower your risk in these uncertain times with a 27-point checklist designed to improve your financial health. Whether you're worried about runaway prices, fear of an upcoming recession, or a stock market meltdown, tune in to the financial quarterback and count on Josh Jelinski to call the play. For a free copy of Josh's book, The Retirement Reality Check, call 888-988-5674. That's 888 888- 8988-5674 or visit Jelinski.org. That's J-A-L-I-N-S-K-I.org. Tune in to the financial quarterback Josh Jelinski of the Jelinski Advisory Group this weekend and learn how to protect your financial future during these turbulent times. Looking to lower your taxes or need help securing your financial future? Then Josh and his team are the people for you. They're experts in financial economics with one mission in mind, to protect you and your investments. From their 27-point checklist to their one-of-a-kind financial quarterback approach, they help you achieve financial health and guide you through the hard times of high inflation, looming recessions, and stock market meltdown. For financial security, call them now, 888-988-5674, and get your free copy of Josh's book, The Retirement Reality Check. And we're back. This is Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback. Now, um, you talk about a repeat of, a ho- of the housing crisis. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that I'm going to be ungenerous for a moment here and say that to me, the Federal Reserve is like the arsonist that sets a fire and then gets a medal for being the first to call the fire department and gets applauded for its heroics. Uh, Because we have this notion looking back that the Federal Reserve gave us a soft landing in 2001 when the dot-com bubble was uh, going to explode. And in 2008, it gave us a soft landing uh, when the housing bubble was going to explode. Instead, the other way of looking at it is that the Federal Reserve caused those two bubbles and many other bubbles going back with aggressively low interest rates. And then when the Federal Reserve panics and thinks that the bubble is going to explode, it raises interest rates too aggressively and gives us a recession. And then to combat that recession, the Federal Reserve lowers the interest rates again. So this whole pretense of social in, of um, economic engineering in which the Federal Reserve is playing, uh, I think, is, is, is back with us now. And the Federal Reserve, for the longest time, denied that there was inflation, certainly was going to deny that it caused the inflation by keeping interest rates so low and by uh, printing so many dollars. Uh, if you consider that 80% of the dollars currently in circulation were printed or quote unquote created uh, since 2020. I think the pattern's repeating itself. We just, the problem is we don't have a crystal ball and we don't know how exactly it's going to look, but there's going to be a reckoning. There's going to be an adjustment because the Federal Reserve is playing around and playing with the stock of money and playing with the economy. We're with Nikolai Wenzel, uh, author of many scholarly articles. He's a professor of economics wrote a recent article called Back to the Future, the Biden administration's loan level price adjustment and a repeat of the housing crisis. Talk about this loan level price adjustment. What is it and why why is it relevant? Well, it's part class warfare, which we can expect from the Biden administration, and it's uh, part tinkering in housing markets. 
So basically what it does is it reward or encourages more housing purchases by raising uh, fees on those who have a high deposit ratio, high deposit loan to value ratio, or very high credit score and lowering the relative fees for those who have a low credit score or are bringing a low down payment to the market. The idea being that those who are in a better position to uh, purchase a house are helping out, quote unquote, those who are in a worse position to do so. Now, there are two difficulties with this. The first one is it plays into the traditional class welfare, which is not the American spirit, especially because if you consider that it's punishing people who have saved carefully, it's punishing people people who have uh, put up a, um, uh, who have built up a uh, savings, built up a deposit for a down payment for a house, built up a good credit score. So it's it's difficult from that point of view, uh, redistributive uh, class warfare politics in which the Biden administration likes to play. It's also dangerous, I see, because it's a parallel to the kinds of things. Now, the magnitude is smaller, but the parallel still applies. It's the kind of things that the Federal Reserve and the federal government were doing in the early 2000s, trying to subsidize subprime loans by encouraging, encouraging banks to make more subprime loans punishing banks that were not making them, rewarding banks with the origination fees, but then snapping up the uh, bad mortgages through Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and uh, taking all the risk away from the banks. So this is a smaller scale version of that. I'm not quite as worried, but it's the same kind of federal interference in uh, housing markets, which is going to tend to put people, so aside from punishing people who have built up good credit, it's going to tend to put people who can't afford housing into precarious situations because suddenly their down payment is going to be even lower. Uh, the mortgage that they're going to be paying and the fees are going to be slightly lower, but they're going to find themselves most likely in situations where they're one repair away from uh, either declaring bankruptcy or defaulting on their mortgages. So it's much smaller scale than what the Fed was doing and the federal um, regulatory agencies were doing in the 2000s, but it's the same idea with dangerous seeds. How did they pass this? Was it executive order? What, what, what was it exactly? Um, as far as I know, it wasn't executive order. It was, uh, I confess, uh, it was the great Milton Friedman who said, if you take any three letters and rearrange them, you'll have a federal agency. Uh, it came from one of the federal agencies, I confess, I had never heard of until about a month ago. It's one of the housing regulatory agencies. It's not the FHA or HUD, I forget. But as far as I know, it was uh, through regulatory action. Wow. I mean, we have something like this in New Jersey that has really screwed up New Jersey for decades. It's the Abbott decision and Mount Laurel decision. I don't know if you've have you uh, studied that much or not really. No, it's been uh, 25 or 30 years since I lived in New Jersey and I was too young in high school to be purchasing houses. Yeah, so well, it's basically why it. New Jersey sucks. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> and I'm a lifelong loyal lover of New Jersey. New Jersey would be solved. Like if I ran for governor uh, based on two key decisions being reversed. And they're very similar to these Biden administration loan level price adjustments. Two Supreme Court decisions have screwed New Jersey. And by the way, the left wants to institute them in mass wherever you are. So, you know, they talk about, well, you know, there's racism and zip codes and I'm all against racism. But the idea in New Jersey, they did this, I don't know, years ago. So Mount Laurel allows in every zip code in New Jersey, they have to have so much affordable housing. 
So they have mandated affordable housing in, in pretty much every zip code. And some towns will manipulate it. They'll put senior affordable housing so they, um, you know, so they get these people. Uh, you know, others will have projects, things like that. Others will have, you know, um, things like Section 8. But it's in mass. Every town has affordable housing. And affordable housing isn't like if you're broke and make 10 grand a year. You could have, you could make 50 grand a year and you could be in affordable housing. And your rent gets subsidized. And if you're a landlord, uh, you then tack on raises and the state approves those raises. So if you're a tenant, you could pay whatever, $1,200 a month. And your landlord could get three grand a month. And the government could be paying that $1,800 a month. So it doesn't encourage thrift. It encourages the landlords to keep jacking the rates up every year. So Mount Oral, and then the other is the Abbott decision, which said the uh, there's 13 urban school districts have to be supported by all of the other school districts in the state by basically having ridiculously high property taxes. I'm oversimplifying it, but basically if those two mandates were done, New Jersey wouldn't be so costly of a place to live. So uh, you get rid of those two things, you would really help New Jersey. Things would be more affordable. You wouldn't have $30,000, $20,000 property tax bills. And most people are kind of clueless on it, but it reminds me of these mandates for affordable housing and this and that. It doesn't make housing any more affordable. And it, it actually engenders class warfare, engenders more racism because people get fed up with being kind of on the other end of the stick. So what say you about that? No, oh, that makes sense. And it sounds like so many other uh, government programs, even if we assume, even if we assume for a moment that both those programs are well-intentioned, they're having, having exactly the opposite consequence, unintended consequences. There you go. It's, and we see this again and again. Of course, there's probably a politician benefiting, a bureaucrat benefiting, a special interest benefiting somewhere. But I look at all those things and I say it's it's completely misguided. Uh, the problem is more things like job licensing requirements that are hurting poor people and preventing them from preventing enough from um, providing honest work and earning enough to afford their own housing instead of housing that's been artificially increased. Uh, um, the housing prices that are artificially increased through uh, government intervention. It's things like zoning laws that are keeping people out, the NIMBY syndrome. So we look at all of this and scratch a little bit, you'll find a regulation. And the problem with regulations is that they have unintended consequences and they distort markets. So then there's a call for another regulation. So let's slap on another regulation. Let's slap on another government program. And oops, we just realized that's raising the prices and hurting the very people we were trying to help. So let's put on another program and another subsidy and another regulation. And you keep adding the layers on. So uh, please do run for governor. Please get rid of those two. And let's uh, let's have a thriving New Jersey and a thriving uh, country. Yeah, I have no desire, sadly. But <laughs> the I don't want to screw up my family like that. But it is interesting. You know, but, but the real solution in 1990, Abbott to... Uh, basically, the New Jersey Supreme Court upheld the administrative law judge's ruling in 1981. It basically was the f funding of the school, public schools, and that they were inequitable. And the very easy solution is you just give everybody the same funding in every district, but they don't do it that way. 
Now it's yep. this weird application and literally you could be paying 30 to 40 grand per kid in certain schools in New Jersey because nobody wants to teach there. So rather than cleaning up the district, anyway, it's, it's, it's a nightmare. So all of these things, that's kind of what these loan level price adjustments realize. And then, like you said, 07, the housing crisis, they said, you know, upon further reflection, a lot of the housing crisis was called by, by all the push for everybody to get mortgages. And not everybody should have a mortgage. Not everybody should own a house. Some people should rent. Some people should buy. So what do you think about unemployment and unemployment rates? So I think unemployment's a, a tricky question to answer right now because we've seen so many distortions in the labor force participation rate over the years. Um, part of the problem, but only part of the problem, is the uh, COVID, um, the COVID relief packages that were not very well. They were properly good politics and bad economics. I think coming from both presidents Trump and Biden, they made sense in on the wake of on the. Uh, re-election years, but it did, did not make sense economically. They were very poorly means tested, if at all. They provided bad incentives for work. Uh, they were not targeted at relief of those who were actually directly affected by the lockdowns, but blanket. And we also saw lengthy extensions of um, unemployment benefits and uh, uh, lengthy inter interference by the federal government in what is typically a, a state program. So that had a number of distortions on um, on the labor markets, which are still playing out. So we still have the paradox, and I haven't completely uh, completely understood it or answered it, where we see that we have a low national unemployment rate and we have a lot of job vacancies. And part of that is people not wanting to work in certain industries. Uh, part of that is other microeconomic level distortions, especially with some communities passing outrageously high. I say that from an economic, but not a moral perspective, high minimum wage laws. So we still have low unemployment. Unemployment, so that's one of the puzzles that we have. And I think it's going to take a little while culturally um, and economically for that to play out. The second thing is so long as the economy itself is still growing, if not as fast, so long as we see uh, the stock market still continuing to grow, I think we're going to continue to have relatively low unemployment rates. It's when the next adjustment comes. It's when the stock market falls and adjusts that uh, we could see recessionary conditions, which will be linked with uh, uh, higher levels of unemployment. Also, are we headed towards stagflation? Again, it's possible. Uh, so all of these things depend on so many external factors that it's, it's tough to say exactly what's going to happen, especially in an election year. Um, it's quite possible that the Federal Reserve is going to allow uh, inflation to continue at its current rate of 5%, which is higher than the traditional 2% or so that we've had since the 1980s. It's possible that there will be continued upward pressures on inflation that the Federal Reserve does not want to address uh, because it fears putting us in a recession. And it's possible that we have that uh, 1970s style with inflation and a, a recession and stagflation. So again, um, I'm not uh, going to give you any definitive answers because there's so many uh, uh, conditions uh, that could affect all of this, especially in the run-up of an election year when the Federal Reserve is going to be very cautious about not throwing the economy into a recession before the election. Do you think more interest rate hikes are coming? They could be. So they could be. Again, it depends. Uh, the Federal Reserve might decide that um, at its next meeting, 
uh, that the FOMC, the Federal Open Market uh, Committee, decides that it's going to uh, raise interest rates even more because inflation's not falling fast enough, that they've waited long enough. On the other hand, I think they're going to be rather timid about that. And um, if anything, just as they delayed action on inflation, I remember they were the pundits were saying, the, the Federal Reserve was saying, uh, Secretary Yellen was saying, oh, this is transitory, it's temporary, not to worry. And suddenly they realized that it was a real problem. And it took them a while to act and raise interest rates to lower um, that inflation. So I suspect the Federal Reserve is going to continue to be somewhat timid, just as it was last week. It's looking at the figures. It's trying to read the tea leaves. It's uh, trying to uh, save its political skin in many ways also. And so it's going to be cautious about raising uh, interest rates, I think, over the coming months, especially, again, in the run-up to an election. Uh, raising interest rates too aggressively could mean throwing the economy into a recession. On the other hand, We've seen it before. The Federal Reserve has acted aggressively uh, when it was worried about uh, a crash landing. So it's tough to say. Folks, we're being joined by Nikolai Wenzel, author of many articles, the, the most recent Back to the Future, the Biden administration's loan level price adjustment and a repeat of the housing crisis for AIER.org. You get Nikolai's book or my book for free, when you schedule and keep your no-obligation review. But today and today only, we will give you Nikolai's book and my book, two-for-one special, when you schedule your 45-minute wealth strategy session. 888-988-JOSH. 888-988-5674. Maybe it seems like prices can't get much higher or that the stock market is headed for bear territory. Or maybe you're worried about another great recession. Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback, can help you protect your family's financial future in times like these. Tune in this weekend to the financial quarterback to hear how Josh and his team can help you decrease your tax liability and lower your risk. Call 888-988-5674 to take advantage of Josh's 27-point plan to achieve financial health. And when you call, you'll receive a free copy of Josh's book, Retirement Reality Check. Tune in every weekend to The Financial Quarterback and call 888-988-5674 to receive your free copy of Retirement Reality Check. Tune in to The Financial Quarterback, Josh Jelinski, this weekend and learn how to protect your financial future in a down economy. Josh and his team at the Jelinski Advisory Group can help you lower your taxes and lower your risk in these uncertain times with a 27-point checklist designed to improve your financial health. Whether you're worried about runaway prices, fear of an upcoming recession, or a stock market meltdown, tune in to the financial quarterback and count on Josh Jelinski to call the play. For a free copy of Josh's book, The Retirement Reality Check, call 888-988-5674. That's 888-988-5674. Or visit Jelinski.org. That's J-A-L-I-N-S-K-I.org. So it seems that no matter which party is in the White House, the spending just doesn't stop. Uh, what are we to do with that? You know, it's almost like you know, in the 90s, there was this call to kind of balance the budget on both sides of the aisle. Seems like we've lost the political will to do that. Uh, what do you think? We have. It's sad. It's scary. Uh, the U.S. Uh, Debt budget to uh, so the U.S. debt to GDP ratio right now is at about 130 percent. 
So the, the country as a whole owes 130% more than the economy produces in one year. That's way too much. But on the other hand, politicians love raising, um, love raising spending. They love spending more. They love redistributing. People love to get their government check. They love to get their subsidy. And politicians don't want to raise taxes. Now, of course, taxes are unhealthy for an economy. But if you're going to raise spending, you're going to have to pay for it one of three ways. One way is to raise taxes, and there's no political will for that. The second way is to keep on borrowing. And so long as U.S. borrowers and the rest of the world are willing to lend money to the U.S. at a relatively low interest rate, that can continue. And the third way that we've seen is monetizing the debt, whereby the Federal Reserve, instead of bondholders, purchases that debt. And that's what we've seen, especially in the past three years, where a full $5 trillion, uh, so doubling uh, government spending before COVID, fully $5 trillion was monetized by the Federal Reserve. We're going to see more debt. We saw recently with, um, I didn't take it too seriously, the interest rate ceiling uh, showdown wasn't really a showdown. It was political points. And so the bad news is the culture has changed. The norm has changed. We don't see an appetite on either side for uh, cutting expenditures. We don't see an appetite on either side for uh, lowering ta taxes, uh, for balancing budgets, for healthy economy. The only hope that I would see is uh, looking back, 1970s, uh, things were pretty grim. Uh, Jimmy Carter was certainly not the best steward of the economy and uh, uh, Nixon taking the US off the gold standard didn't help. And then Ronald Reagan emerged. And in 1970s, uh, the United Kingdom was considered to be the sick man of Europe. And then Margaret Thatcher emerged and cleaned things up. So just as I am uh, somewhat worried and not too happy with what's going on in Washington with lack of principle in both parties and certainly no stomach for fiscal discipline. I'd like to think that eventually somebody's going to emerge and somebody's going to clean things up and we're going to get somebody to get us out of this mess. But it has to start with individual education, which is what you're doing. So thank you. I think a lot of people, we've rarely had a politician since, I guess, you know, Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich, I mean, you, you see periodic people, John Kasich, uh, this person, we'll talk about it. I guess DeSantis may run on a platform of lower spending, kind of in contrast to Trump, if if they have a Trump-DeSantis showdown. Mm -hmm. I, I do think the American people are smart enough to realize we can't keep doing what we're doing. And just as Ross <coughs> Perot was sort of the goad I mean, if it wasn't for Ross Perot, would you really have had Bill Clinton change on the debt? I mean, 92, he was sort of a tax and spend kind of guy. 94, he saw the light. Gingrich saw the light, changed the contract of America. It was almost like in response to Ross Perot. So maybe there's a Ross Perot figure that will develop. Or maybe one of the candidates, maybe Kennedy, maybe DeSantis, maybe some other candidate emerges and their issues the debt. Because... The dollar losing its hegemony in the world that we, we won't be able to keep uh, we won't be able to keep the game going for very long. People are, are beginning to not trust the U.S. system as much. Still, it's like the cleanest, dirty shirt in the laundry pile. So we can yeah. still print a lot of money. We can still, you know, print a lot of, you know, we can still you know, sell our bonds, but eventually people are going to know what's a bond, you know, what's the U.S. Treasury worth? There's still an appetite for them. And, you know, what did we go from 80% uh, 
of U.S. trade being uh, 80% of all world trade being backed by the dollar to 60%. Although your colleague at the AER says that that's not necessarily due to, he has some theory. He says it's not, that's not really related. Um, what is his name? Remind me of his name. This be Peter Earl or? Earl. Yeah. He says that that 80 to 60% is not the normal talking point. It, it a lot of it's due to the euro just kind of chunking a percentage of world trade being in euros that would be denominated in euros no matter what but i still think that that matters right i mean you start you know having a little bit here a little bit there chinese yuan you know kind of my theory is a little different than his in that if the yuan is not going to take on the dollar completely but if it represents let's say three percent of global trade and they up it to 5%. And then you have Bitcoin, which was zero, and now it's 1% of global trade, or two. Then you have some countries going back to a gold standard a little bit, like Russia. That's 1% or 2%. So you start diminishing the dollar's percentage, which makes a difference. And then people start saying, yeah, screw the dollar. We're going to do renminbis. We're going to do, do a basket of global currencies. We're going to have 60% of the dollar, but then it starts to get an appetite that things don't, uh, France was doing some interesting things, you know, I don't know what, what say you on that? Well, as you said, the cleanest dirty shirt, uh, theory, I think, uh, works very well. I, I thought for a while that the Euro might eventually not necessarily take over the dollar, but take over a serious chunk. But the Euro is a mess. It was a political project from the beginning about unifying and cementing the European Union. It was not an economic project. And there are too many structural and fiscal differences uh, among the different countries of the European Union and the European Monetary Union for the Euro ever to emerge, I think, is up there. Uh, this European Central Bank and the European politicians are just trying to keep things together. I don't see the euro as a threat to the dollar. The second is I don't see the yuan as a threat to the dollar simply because China does not have rule of law. It does not have independent courts. It still has meddling from the Communist Party. So uh, people are going to be extremely reluctant to sign contracts in yuan that can't be adjudicated by uh, free courts. So I, I think the U.S. has quite a ways to go in terms of being displaced. Um, on the other hand, it wouldn't be an entirely bad thing. So it, it would hurt the U.S. economy, of course, if uh, some other currency were to take over the dollar. But it would not be an entirely bad thing because uh, the politicians in Washington, D.C. have been getting a free ride. <laughs> They've been able to spend so much and borrow so much because the dollar is the world's uh, currency. And they've been able to get away with it all. So fundamentally, what we need is more fiscal discipline at home. And unfortunately, if some other currency were to emerge, ideally Bitcoin rather than a currency tied to a hostile foreign country. But if some other currency were to emerge, that would impose discipline on the politicians in Washington and they wouldn't be able to um, borrow and spend as much. So it would not be an entirely bad thing, although there would be, of course, negative consequences. I would love to see us get ahead of that and have fiscal discipline before that happens. But that's not the way it necessarily goes. What about uh, what about Bitcoin? A lot of your AIER type people are are very much like gold bugs. You're the mm -hmm. first that kind of lit up a little bit when I said Bitcoin. Um, I don't think gold is the solution to this problem. 
I think it presents problems. I think Bitcoin is more of the solution to this problem. Uh, what's your take on that? I like to say that Bitcoin is the future, but the future isn't quite here yet. Uh, either Bitcoin or some alternate currency, I think some competition to state owned money is going to be healthy and will emerge at some point. We're not there yet for a variety of reasons. One is the simple pragmatic reason that you can cross the country with dollars in your pockets and buy things. You can't do that with Bitcoin. Bitcoin's the precursor. It's still fairly volatile. And the difficulty is also that countries are extremely jealous of their monopoly on issuance of money. They're extremely jealous of seniorage. They're extremely jealous of the ability to engage in uh, monetary policy. So countries are going to do what they can to block uh, competition from emerging. I'm excited about Bitcoin because it represents an alternative. It represents innovation. I suspect it won't be Bitcoin itself that eventually replaces the dollar 20, 50, 100 years from now, who knows. But I think it will be some alternate currency because we've seen that the dollar backed with gold worked. The dollar backed by nothing doesn't work. And suddenly we get these business cycles and we get inflation and we get, I think, the Federal Reserve, or not since um, uh, the end of the dollar uh, standard, uh, the, the gold standard, but since 1913 when it was founded, the Federal Reserve has debased the value of the US dollar by something like 97%. And if you want to have a little fun, look at the price of gold today, which is hovering somewhere around $20,000. So now I haven't checked recently. And in 1913, how many dollars does it take to buy an ounce of gold? So that tells you what has happened to the value of the dollar since the Federal Reserve started. So not necessarily Bitcoin. Um, I'm not a Bitcoin bug, I guess you might call it, but I am hugely optimistic about alternatives coming up to uh, state monopoly on money. Yeah, I don't think there are any alternatives, though. You know, you need you need the network, you need the miners. There's 68,000 plus miners. There's a system. There's programmatic uh, rules in place. I think if anything, it's it's going to be Bitcoin, but it's my take. Um, I, I just don't see that, you know, any of these other things are really going to do anything. But um, I think we're far away from it. Uh, but I don't think yeah. volatility and price volatility means it won't be the solution to money. I think it'll be things that are going to be built on top of Bitcoin, like the Lightning Network, yeah. And so people will devise it by Satoshis. And I don't I don't think I think Bitcoin might be the reserve currency of that sort of layer that's built on top of it, where people can trust the rules that they won't be kind of just manipulated by government dictate and fiat. I, I like hey, I think uh, that's interesting. So uh, let's talk about market opportunities since this is an investing show. If you're just mm -hmm. joining me, I'm Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback. So uh, your work as an economist, what investment themes do you like? Well, I can't help myself but go back and make one last quick comment on uh, on Bitcoin. And I think what we might see is some sort of um, uh, de facto emergence. I'm thinking of two examples. After the fall of the Soviet empire in 1989 and before the euro uh, commercial transactions and real estate transactions in Eastern Europe took place in Deutschmarks. It wasn't official, but people, even it was, if it was not the legal tender, people trusted the Deutschmark. So when they bought houses, they wrote contracts in Deutschmarks in Eastern Europe. 
uh, just as many Latin American countries use dollars for high-figure contracts. So we might see that emerging with Bitcoin. In terms of investment opportunities, again, I'm, I'm a very boring investor. Um, I'm entirely in index funds because uh, I don't want to second guess myself and I don't want to try and guess what's happening with the market. The advice that I would give for to people in times of volatility is save a little more than you were uh, because you never know what's going to happen. Prices might go up. Your stock holdings might go down. Um, you might uh, find yourself unemployed if there is a recession indeed. The second is keep that cash reserve that people talk about. This is especially the time to do it. Um, even if your uh, cash is being eaten away at uh, five, six, seven percent per year by inflation, you can mitigate that a little bit with money markets, but keep that cash reserve and diversify your assets because you never know which sector of the economy is going to be hit. I know I'm terribly boring. I'm an index investor. I'm a um, efficient market hypothesis guy. I'm an Austrian economist, and I'm not going to try to think that my mind can beat the market. So I leave those details to the financial advisors like you with a word of caution to everybody that uh, old fashioned preparation is probably the best way to weather storms. No, great, great, great tip. Would you say people are more at risk now than ever before? I wouldn't say never before. Again, I lack a crystal ball, but the U.S. economy has weathered some pretty nasty storms. Uh, the Great Depression took, what, 25 years for the stock market to recover. I don't think the next adjustment is going to be anywhere near that big. Uh, 1981 was pretty bad. Uh, the 2007 adjustment in the grand scheme of things wasn't as bad as it could have been. So, no, I think uh, there's risk ahead. And without having the crystal ball, I think the uh, U.S. economy certainly has weathered some awful political and economic crises. I don't think this is the worst the country has ever seen. Uh, politicians could always muck, muck that up and make me look bad and say, make it make it the worst we've ever seen. But I think the greatest risk is political rather than economic. This is Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback, inviting you to call us for our two-for-one special. You get two books when you call us today. Nikolai Wenzel's latest book and Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback's book, the Retirement Reality Check, when you schedule your 45-minute business owner matrix protect, save, growth model, whether you're a business owner, busy executive, or you're, you're new retiree, newly retired, you could be an employee, you're looking to retire, there has never been a better time to get your own protect, save, growth model than by calling us right now at 888-988-JOSH, say the word model, and you get the model and two free books, Nikolai Wenzel's books and my book, for free, 888-988-JOSH, 888-988-JOSH. Tune in to the financial quarterback, Josh Jelinski of the Jelinski Advisory Group this weekend and learn how to protect your financial future during these turbulent times. Looking to lower your taxes or need help securing your financial future? Then Josh and his team are the people for you. They're experts in financial economics with one mission in mind, to protect you and your investments. From their 27-point checklist to their one-of-a-kind financial quarterback approach, they help you achieve financial health and guide you through the hard times of high inflation, looming recessions, and stock market meltdown. For financial security, call them now, 888-988-5674, and get your free copy of Josh's book, The Retirement Reality Check. Tune in to the financial quarterback, Josh Jelinski, this weekend and learn how to protect your financial future in a down economy. 
Josh and his team at the Jelinski Advisory Group can help you lower your taxes and lower your risk in these uncertain times with a 27-point checklist designed to improve your financial health. Whether you're worried about runaway prices, fear of an upcoming recession, or a stock market meltdown, tune in to the financial quarterback and count on Josh Jelinski to call the play. For a free copy of Josh's book, The Retirement Reality Check, call 888-988-5674. That's 888-988-5674. Or visit Jelinski.org. That's J-A-L-I-N-S-K-I.org. We had another economist on here, and he talked about inflation being persistent. He noted that, you know, natural gas and kind of the Biden administration artificially, you know, manipulating supply has kept that lower than it should have been. That when things kind of get repriced, they stop, you know, flooding the reserves. It might be, I guess, after the election, maybe that's kind of your theory, that we'll see inflation kind of wave two or three. And kind of we wake up and say it wasn't transitory, it's persistent, and it's and it's uh, higher for longer. What do you think about that? So again, that could be, and it uh, a lot depends on the distractions to the Biden administration. A lot depends on which parties control the House and Senate and how crazy the next president is going to go. Uh, the Biden administration has been pretty aggressive about regulation. Regulations tend to increase prices. They tend to redistribute uh, economic uh, opportunity and economic activity to those who are politically connected. Uh, so I, I tend to look at much more of those fundamentals in terms of the regulations that are going to come out. And if I, I don't want to be too, too exaggerated too much, but really the war on free enterprise that we've been seeing. And so if that gets tamped down with over the next year or so and in the next administration, uh, we've, we've got some good news ahead, but we could also get much more regulation. We could get higher taxes. Uh, we could get uh, much more inter interference in economic activity. So again, I tend to follow what's going on in, in politics and what's going on in regulation with the consequences for the economy rather than any particular sector. So um, do you have anything you'd like to plug or articles or websites or books? Well, I, I do have one on uh, Friday last week on the Law and Liberty website, lawliberty.org. Um, I wrote a piece called The Heroic Jimmy Lai. Uh, Jimmy Lai is a uh, pro-democracy activist in Hong Kong who was uh, arrested during the protests and sentenced to three years in uh, prison. And, in, and then in September, he goes up and uh, he's 75, but he may face life in prison for advocating democracy and for peaceful protests. It's a small thing, but I think it's important to keep an eye on uh, Jimmy Lai and keep an eye on uh, the freedoms of Hong Kong and the activities of China. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great day. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Keep up the great work. Thank you.